Musical Theatre Writer Guy was written and filmed as a YouTube channel series on the traditional and unceded territory of the Muncie Lenape and Canarsie people. Each episode is also released here in podcast form. To learn how you can work with me or to join the Musical Theatre Writing Collective, please find out more at michaelraddy.com. That's M-I-C-H-A-E-L-R-A-D-I dot com. Enjoy the show. With Into the Woods, but also Sondheim in general, I feel empowered to um, look at the text on its own, in part because in Into the Woods, we have the death of the narrator. So this idea of the death of the author, um, we literally have the death of the narrator, which gives us the chance to write our own story. Welcome back to another interview in our series. Today is very exciting. We have on another of the musical theater YouTube space, David Benkoff, also known as the Broadway Maven. David, welcome. Thank you for joining us here. Thank you, thank you Michael. It's really great to uh, be here with you and all of your uh, musical theater writer guys. Oh, thank you so much. Now, uh, for those of you who may not know you, uh, how would you uh, self-identify with what you do, how you're involved in the theatrical space, and uh, what you provide? Thanks. Well, well, the way I like to think about what the Broadway Maven does is we help people think more deeply about musical theater. So I've got classes, and there is a newsletter, and there's a YouTube channel. But the, the real goal is to get people to take a look at old shows and new shows with fresh eyes mm-hmm. and uh, interpret uh, Broadway shows on a deeper level. That's lovely. Uh, the uh, interpretation idea, looking backwards, I think is uh, very interesting, something we'll definitely explore a little later on when we get to our main topic for today. But I know that you consider your classes Broadway appreciation classes. Right. Can you can you say a little bit more about what that means and what those classes are like? Sure, sure. So um, uh, a lot of what we do is we'll take one show and we'll look at some of the numbers and some of the themes and some of the ideas. Um, We'll look at the history of the show and uh, um, the meanings of the characters and the plot and the lyrics. I, I just try to um, peel back the uh, specific layers of the show to try to get at uh, what's really going on. Yeah, which is lovely. I feel like that's a lot of work that writers and performers and anyone actually working in the space does all the time. And for me, when I sat in on your the first of the classes I sat in on, I was like, oh, right. This is not something that audiences are used to doing. It's right. just something we do naturally as, as people in the business. Uh, so what sparked that idea for you? Um, well, I've been I've been a fan of Broadway for a very long time, since I was quite young. And uh I also like um art interpretation and literature interpretation and uh, to really get my uh, uh, my hands dirty. And uh, there's so many layers in Broadway shows that it's really fun to, to see what's there. And, and as we've mentioned with Sondheim, there's even more. Oh, there is so much with Sondheim. <laughs> he may be the deepest to delve into, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. Um, so... Uh, when it comes to the interpretive work that you do in these classes, in your newsletter, 
is this the kind of thing where you go off and you do research about what the writers have said about the shows and then also bring in modern interpretations? Does everything mostly drive from you? I know you also bring in guests to speak. Right. I I like to deal with the text itself, Mm. right? So I'm less interested in what uh, Sondheim or Roger and Hammerstein said they were trying to do uh, than what the text is there and what I can figure out about it. An example that I recently came up with was I realized that um, uh, Judd Fry, who's the villain in Oklahoma, has a name that is short for Judas. And he's mm-hmm. the villain, right? So um, uh, now, do I know that uh, Oscar Hammerstein put it there on purpose? Well, we do know that the name was originally Jeter. So he did put in a name. Uh, and I think it's interesting and meaningful that he picked a name that is one of the biggest villains in uh, uh, Western society. Is it there on purpose? I don't know. Can we find it there? For sure. Yeah. Yeah. This is a lot of fun work, right? When you get to sit down and make connections about things within a show that we don't know if they were done on purpose, but it doesn't matter because the connection is still there. I totally agree. I've got one that I'm currently working on that's really, um, it is a stretch, but I think it ends up being lovely, which is um, uh, in... um, uh, a little night music. There's a line in A Weekend in the Country where she says, uh, starts with an A. And A in Western literature is the uh, uh, scarlet letter, which represents shame and adultery and regret and hypocrisy, which are the themes of A Little Night Music and the themes of uh, the scarlet letter and is Sondheim trying to make a reference to that other work of literature? I don't know. But if I can find it in there, then that can be fun. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's interesting. And I also wonder how often, uh, again, we'll get more into this, but I wonder mm-hmm. how often these things show up on the page because of conscious thought versus unconscious thought. Because right. I've definitely gone back to my work where there are, nuggets I dropped in specifically but sometimes I'll find something or an actor will point something out in my writing and I'm like oh yeah no I guess I did I did do that didn't I like yeah huh uh uh-huh because we can't help but bring so much of ourselves to the work sure sure it's uh um here's another one I was thinking about merrily we roll along um which there's this big conflict between the uh, composer and the lyricist. Mm. And I've been thinking about how in Sondheim's own life, his desire to be both composer and lyricist at the same time could be represented in Merrily by the conflict between the composer and the lyricist, which re- represents represents what Sondheim would have liked to have done in his own career. Absolutely. That is interesting. I've had that thought before as well, or I guess that ponderance um, especially in those moments where Sondheim has spoken about how he feels like he boxed himself in with a certain musical phrase, perhaps, and then he enjoys that puzzle, right, of figuring it all out. But the way he speaks about the music side and the lyric side is interesting, because I don't often hear in his writing or his interviews him saying that, like, this just popped out of me onto the paper, music and lyrics, right? It's yeah. often 
um, uh, like this battle between the flow of it and mm -hmm. then the nitty gritty work of it. You you might get a kick out of this because I, you know, I usually don't get a chance to find out if I'm right or not sure. when I have these theories about what different things are going on in Sondheim or in other uh, uh, Broadway theater. So I have this theory about um, the song Unworthy of Your Love from uh, uh, Assassins, which is a sort of a radio ballad. Yeah. It is uh, this sort of uh, very sweet Carpenters-like uh, loving song, but it happens to be towards Charlie Manson and towards uh, uh uh Jody Foster as he uh tries to kill the president of the United States. And so my theory was what Sondheim was saying is yes, I know that uh unbeknownst to me, um Sending the Clowns became this big radio hit. It wasn't on purpose. And I'm gonna make sure it never happens again because I'm gonna do another <laughs> uh radio hit, except for I'm gonna do one that could never be played on the radio because of what the content is. Yeah. So I saw um, uh, John Weidman at uh, Broadway Con, and I said, am I right? And he said, well, I was there when he wrote it, and I can tell you he was simply trying to write for the character. All, All right. right. <laughs> yeah. So sometimes you get the answer. Sure, sure. And I, I don't think that's too much of a leap to make. I mean, how often... Did, did Stephen Sondheim say that he was never really intending for his music to end up on the popular radio? Right. It's just not what he was aiming toward. And of right. course, the times changed anyway, as far as what became popular on the radio versus Broadway and how that split came about. But that is very interesting. I actually played John Hinckley in Assassins in college and, uh, that was one of the things I noticed about that song right away. I was like, wow, this is the most pop I've ever heard Sondheim sound. Exactly. Exactly. And yet it's got that uh, twist to it. Yeah. Delightful. I love it. <laughs> um, all right. So I've got a few questions to warm us up into our topic here. Sure. Um, I'm going to say you're not allowed to say Stephen Sondheim for this answer. No problem. What musical theater writer's work do you gravitate toward the most? Perhaps maybe their work shows up more often in your classes, or maybe yeah. it's just personal. Oh, I'm a big Howard Ashman fan. Yeah. I, I love his lyrics. I love the sophistication of his lyrics, the playfulness. Um, boy, did we lose some, some great talent when he yeah. passed. Yeah. He was a huge influence on me growing up. Really? Yeah. I mean, I grew up in the the era of those Disney films, and right. it it was, I mean, not that Mencken's music didn't also, like, light me up. It did, very much so. But there was something about, as you said, the playfulness in those lyrics, while still being grounded and telling story. I don't know. He, yeah, he was kind of a master. So you didn't make me struggle when you said I couldn't say Sondheim. I went right to Howard Ashman. I was <laughs> yeah <laughs> um okay so here's a different question for you so with you working on uh like in the broadway sphere on youtube with your newsletter with your classes it's kind of a two-sided question what have you seen as your biggest challenge in that space and the greatest opportunity 
tour. Um, you know, it's, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of students that are wild for Broadway. Uh, and, you know, especially like the golden age, they can just uh, talk forever. Um, I wish I had more. Uh, it's hard to find uh, uh, the um, uh, the wild enthusiasts, but once you've got them, boy, will they uh, um, boy will they be able to contribute. And yeah. um, I uh, my newsletter comes out once a once a week, and I have uh, what I call a last blast, where at the end of my newsletter, I come up with like some uh clever observation or commentary about an aspect of a show and i really like to get um little corners of the broadway world that uh might be easy to miss something from rent or something from guys and dolls that uh help people look at broadway in a new way yeah was that the challenge or the opportunity it could be both i, oh, I want to be I want to give you one that I just came up with. Um, so I, I'm Jewish. I have kept kosher my whole life. We don't mix meat with milk. Okay. Tevya is a dairy man, and Laser Wolf is a butcher. Yeah. Oh, so you're not supposed to mix meat and milk, and yet these two professions and they hate each other. Um, and Bringing the milk and the meat together, which is what happens in the song L'chaim, represents sort of uh, um, sort of the uh, old way of life falling apart. Anyway, so that's a really fun one. And uh, uh, maybe it's conventional wisdom, but I've never heard anybody say it before. I've never heard anyone say it aloud. Yeah, that's interesting. Because I, I had noticed that at some point, I think when I saw the, the revival, the Broadway revival, but mm. I don't think I ever spoke to anyone about it. So that's great. I love that. Yeah. Um, that's an excellent observation. Um, is there anything that you've done so far mm -hmm. that you're particularly proud of, really rises to the top? Mm -hmm. Whether that be a class, an event, um, speaking with anyone in the field, I know you've done a lot, and you know a lot of people. So, yeah, I uh, I've done a lot of thinking about um, uh, Fosse's Cabaret, about the uh, film, uh, my favorite movie musical, probably my favorite movie, um, and it exists on so many levels um, that are easy to miss, but once stuff gets pointed out, you can't unsee it. So uh, uh, the um, a a good example is the uh, Kit Kat Club. What does it represent? Well, it's uh, it's uh, hot. To get there, you have to go downstairs. Um, it the colors are red and black. You've got a uh, a male leader who's holding what looks like a pitchfork. Right? It's it's hell. The Kit Kat Club represents uh, uh, the Weimar Republic as it descends into hell, uh, and it's easy to miss. But once you see all those things, they're uh, they're right there. It's a great, great film. It is, and and so how does that connect with what you're most particularly proud of? Oh, I just like uh, um, analyzing the heck out of uh, <laughs> uh, brilliant 
brilliant Broadway. And um, it is, uh, it's just a great film. I'll, I'll give you an, another example. Um, uh, I have this theory about Elsie, um, okay. where uh, um, she, she's, um, uh, she talks about having this roommate um, who, <clears throat> um, uh, I used to have a girlfriend known as Elsie with whom I shared four sorted rooms in Chelsea. So Elsie doesn't actually, um, represent a person. It is a character that Sally Bowles knew in, in this story that she's singing. Um, so Elsie doesn't exist uh, as a person in real life, hmm. um, Elsie is somebody that Sally Bowles is uh, uh, singing about. But who is Liza Minnelli singing about when she sings about Elsie? Ooh. She's singing about her mother. Wow, yeah. Right? That's interesting. And when you see the performance, now, of course, Kendra and Ebb didn't write it that way. But when you look at the performance, you can totally see Judy Garland's face on uh, Liza Minnelli when she sings Cabaret. And it just it just enhances the viewing of the uh, film to get this new perspective on it. Yeah. Oh, I love that. That is so interesting. Um, it's been a very long time since I've seen that film. But now I want to go back and watch it just specifically for that. Uh, I was watching just like two weeks ago a compilation of moments of Judy Garland singing where the, the point of this video was pointing out moments where she was clearly singing about her family oh, and okay. you could see it in her face in the performances. And that's very interesting to think about Liza singing about her mother, which I'm sure happened quite a bit throughout her career. I just have this image that um, before Liza went on to sing the cabaret song, that um, Fosse went and whispered in her ear, sing about your mother. Mm. And then that's that's the way it happened. I have no idea, no idea. But it, it makes it more fun to watch. Exactly. It does. Interesting. Yeah. Is there a show that got you originally hooked into musical theater? You said that you got hooked pretty young. Sure. Um, I live in St. Louis, or I grew up in St. Louis, where... Uh, the Muni is the largest outdoor theater in the United States. And uh, I grew up seeing shows every summer at the Muni. My first show, I was four years old. I saw The Wizard of Oz at the Muni. And the Wicked Witch that they had was literally the best uh, casting you could possibly have for Wicked Witch. They had Margaret Hamilton. Oh, my God. I know. Because she was young in the movie. Right. So in 1974, she was old. The actress was old and the witch was old. So it worked perfectly. And uh, I remember I remember my parents saying, it's the real witch. And of course, I thought it was a real witch. <laughs> I love that. Oh, my yeah. gosh. What I wouldn't have given to see that performance. Isn't that classic? <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That is an excellent casting choice. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, all right. And then a year later, it was Annie, and you know, just uh, yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of pleasure in seeing 
Shang Show. And I think though that a lot of people would would probably name those two titles right away. I know for me, I grew up on both of them, and yeah. they definitely sparked a love of musical theater for me as well. Um, though I don't know that I've ever seen The Wizard of Oz live on stage. I think I've only seen the movie. Huh? But I did love that movie. It's so well done. Well, it's it's interesting because it uh is uh several years before Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film and yet it there it's got like several i want songs and it's it's like got the structure of a broadway show in a way that may be more mature than one would expect before you know four years before oklahoma was even around yeah well that that actually brings up something interesting this could be a whole other topic for another day but when i was doing research for the gershwin show what yeah. i thought was very interesting in taking a deep dive into what the Gershwin brothers were doing was that they were all very obviously taking their work during the war, well, depression and then into the war, and heading west, right? Everyone just kind of picked up the writers and they went out there and wrote for the movies. And I never really thought about it in those terms before of like, oh, right. I mean, stages got a little bit quiet where musical comedy is concerned. Uh, in various ways, but the films blew up right over the next couple of decades. You know, some of our most talented people, um, uh, Irving Berlin was writing for Hollywood, and you know, yeah. uh, folks that are Broadway people, the money was in Hollywood, so there's a lot of writing going on out there. Yeah, and then the the return to, if you will, return to Broadway for the beginning of what we consider the the golden or gilded age of musical theater, I think is right. uh, watching that transition happen is very interesting because some uh-huh. people clearly stayed out West where others were bi-coastal and some people just never left New York City. And you get kind of this lovely little split in the type of writing that comes out during that period. Hmm. All right, one more question that will pivot us into our topic. Okay. Do you have a favorite Sondheim song? A favorite Sondheim song? Um, you know, uh, I, I think, um, on the steps of the palace from into the woods is just terrific. Just all the rhymes and all the playfulness. Um, and you, you may have heard when I presented on this, uh, at Broadway con, um, this idea that, um, she, uh, Cinderella, um, is singing on the steps of the palace. And she also has stepsisters and a stepmother. And a step is the difference in pitch between one note and the next. And Cinderella is the one who gets pitch on the stairs and who uses pitch to capture the giantess. And it steps at all the musical terms and the physical aspects. It's really fun. It is. Yeah, I thought that was super interesting because I watched that clip that you Mm -hmm. had posted from Broadway Con. And I hadn't really thought about that before, especially the idea of pitch and step in combination, which I think is really interesting with that ostinato that moves throughout the base of that whole song, that kind of indecision sound of that da 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 that just kind of, um, I don't know, drives the momentum of the entire piece while everything else is happening above it. I thought that was... That was very interesting. You can almost see her kind of like waffling with one one foot here, one foot slightly below, and got to make a decision. That was very, that was good. I like that. 
Yeah. Let's talk about Broadway Con. So you did sure. a panel on Sondheim. How did this come about? Who was involved? Uh, okay, so um, I like teaching young people. And Broadway Con attracts a lot of young people. And so I had this idea of going and just learning more about it and you know maybe finding ways that I can use it to uh, grow my business. And I went in, I got in on their list. And then on a Friday, it said, Sunday is the deadline for proposing sessions. Mm. Like I can propose a session. <laughs> so I I said that uh, Gail, who teaches uh, Sondheim with me, and Peter, who is an expert at uh, Sondheim and has seen every uh, first run Sondheim show, except for anyone can whistle uh, since a funny thing happened. Um, and uh, uh, then I um, thought, okay, I've got, I've got a few people set up. Wouldn't it be great to have Howard Ho? So I sent Howard an email saying, um, uh, do you want to be on a Broadway con panel? And within a half an hour, he wrote back. So we had him Love too. It. Lots of fun. That's fantastic. And the topic was? The, the topic was, I know things now, remembering Stephen Sondheim. Which is lovely. Um, I'm... A little bit surprised that that a Sondheim panel wasn't already set up, but how wonderful that you were able to propose that and uh, get get right on in and do this panel. I only saw the one 10 minute clip, but mm -hmm. it looked like a super interesting panel on analysis with Sondheim. Can you tell yeah. us a little bit about what was spoken about? Well, sure. Um, uh, like I said, Peter talked about um, having been to all of these uh, first run um, openings of uh, 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 Sondheim shows. Um, uh, Howard shared his theories of where um, Sondheim was an innovator and where Sondheim was a traditionalist. Mm. Um, Gail shared things that are easy to miss about uh, Sunday in the Park with George, and I did the same thing with uh, Into the Woods. That's lovely. Yeah. In the First of all, I wish I had been available. I would have loved to have gone to that. Um, but in the clip, you talk about something that I love, this concept of the death of the narrator and right. just expanding that into uh, how we can analyze things, um, yeah. specifically in Sondheim. Uh, where did that idea, well, I know where the idea sparked from. I bet the audience can guess, but let's talk about it. Where did the idea spark from? I get, I get accused of finding stuff that doesn't really exist or um, really stretching or uh, uh, digging around and finding things that are probably not in there on purpose. And uh, it's a basic concept of uh, uh, interpreting Western art uh, is that the it's the text itself that matters and not the biography of the person who wrote it and the psychology and the uh, um, the setting and the, all that stuff isn't what matters. It's the text itself. And uh, with Into the Woods, but also Sondheim in general, I feel empowered to um, look at the text on its own, in part because in Into the Woods, we have the death of the narrator. So this idea of the death of the author, um, we literally have the death of the narrator, which gives us the chance to write our own stories. 
which is part of what's fun uh, with Into the Woods and certainly with Sondheim in general. Absolutely. And I don't think Sondheim really held back as far as how he felt about people interpreting his work. No. He was, he was always very gracious about it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there is a quote from, and I think it's from Sondheim on Music, from that set of interviews, where he's mm-hmm. talking about the the cast album, the original Broadway cast album of Company, I believe yeah. it was. And uh, the interviewer was asking him about how uh, how the casting came to be, where there were some people in that cast who were not considered singers. I believe right. Elaine Stritch was in particular being brought up. And I love Sondheim's answer of just, I, it, once a voice has been put to the character, that is the voice I have on that character forever. I can right. see a thousand interpretations of it, and it's still that person's voice. Mm. And I love that because it shows that, yes, he's partial to what came first, but he's right. so open to what comes next. Yeah, yeah. She's uh she's just terrific and uh <clears throat> it's fun as she gets uh older to see her um uh move from Ladies Who Lunch to I'm Still Here. Yeah. Yeah. Watching her perform I'm Still Here is still jaw dropping. And I've seen it done multiple times. But yeah. Th- the depth of humanity that she brings to that song. My God. Uh, yeah. There's something, I don't know. There are specific performers that clearly connect to Sondheim's writing extraordinarily well, and she's just one of them. Mm. Sure. Um, Mandy Patinkin and mm. uh, Pone, Bernadette Peters. Peters. Yeah. So in terms of this death of the author interpretation sort of idea, now that you feel that you have carte blanche, which I think you should have to interpret as you will, Mm -hmm. what is it about Sondheim in particular that makes him such a delight to dive into with that work? Right. Well, well, um, he's a puzzle master. Mm. And what he's done is he's put all kinds of little um, Easter eggs throughout his work that's really fun to try to find. Um, I'll give an example. Uh, There's a song in A Little Night Music called uh, Perpetual Anticipation. And there's a character in A Little Night Music named Petra and a character named Anne. So perpetual anticipation. it sure seems to me, because the, the names are too similar for Sondheim not to have put them there uh, on purpose. And it's just sort of fun that that the uh, lyric exists uh, and turns back in on itself. That is interesting. I've never put that one together. Um, um, I have I have three um, uh, Sondheim anagrams. Okay, so, right. please. So the one that a lot of people have done is he pens demon hits. Nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which he does. Okay. Then if I'm being um, more uh, cynical, phoniness themed is an <laughs> exact uh, uh, 
uh, anagram for Stephen Sondheim. Okay. Uh, but when you think about phoniness in light music and in company, it really could be part of his theme. Sure. And then the other one is sense depth on him. Hmm. Now, Sondheim did not name himself, right? <laughs> but these things are just sitting there waiting to be uh, discovered. My, the other one I really like about uh, uh, Sondheim is um, Oscar Hammerstein can be, the letters can be mixed to spell, is a Macher's mentor. Macher okay. is a, a big shot, right? Oh. Oscar Hammerstein uh, spells out is a Macher's mentor. So. Wow. Yeah. That's fine. What, what made you dive into to this line of thinking and wordplay? Well, I, I took out the word mentor. I saw it, took out the oh. word mentor, and then you started messing around and playing with what else might be uh, sitting there. Sometimes just uh, an example that I'll give you, because I, I, I see him as a uh, archaeologist of the um, uh, English language. Um, in a uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. There's this great part where uh, um, uh uh, one, two, one, two. We not only, not only, what have we come to? One, two. yeah, we not only fought, but we won, two, one, two, one, two. We not only fought, but we won, two. And um, that that concept of one, two, one, two exists in the English language. Somebody had to discover it. Uh, and Sondheim was the first uh, to do it. Left, right, left, right. There's not any enemy left, right? Mm -hmm. That that exists it had to be discovered and mm. Sondheim was the first one to uh point it out and so we all got to enjoy that yeah i like that idea of him being an archaeologist of the english language he is mm. someone who uh for my money excited me in terms of vocabulary mm -hmm. when i was in college and i was really beginning to take an independent look at his lyric writing and his music writing something about the lyric writing because like obviously we're all delighted and tickled by the rhymes by the lovely spinning of words but something that delighted me in taking a deep look was the use of certain words uh, right. i'll give a small example i just love that sweeney todd starts with attend the tale of sweeney todd Sure. We don't hear the word attend being utilized in the way of like listen up anymore. Right, right. But it's a it's a beautiful double use of the word attend. And he built an entire opening number off of it. Right. So there's something um sure, yes, clever, but I think just thoroughly well researched in his choice of words in everything. Oh yeah, oh yeah. And there's there's nothing seems to be there by accident or by coincidence. It's all very deliberate. Absolutely. Now, and how you... about you as a as a uh, uh, musical theater writer? Where does uh, uh, the Sondheim uh, model show up in your own in your own writing? <laughs> That's an excellent question. I am heavily influenced by Sondheim, but. I don't know if I would know how to answer that question. Whenever I'm in doubt, <clears throat> I do usually return to Sondheim's scores for some sort of inspiration. Mm -hmm. And that inspiration can come in the form of, oh, that's an interesting way to structure a song. Or mm -hmm. it can come in the form of, ah, yes, 
I have more flexibility than I think I do. And then going back to my own work, because he's such, like you said, a puzzle master that sometimes I feel like in order to write something with good craft, things have to end up boxing themselves in, but it's not true. I think he utilized puzzles and structure in order to crack open flexibility, not diminish it. So at, at the Broadway con panel, we, uh, did a survey to see who people thought the best, best man of roses and what the best uh, Sondheim lyrics are, et cetera. Mm. And uh, everything kind of had a, a tie. There was no clearly demonstrating uh, answer to any of them, except the best score. There were four people who thought that uh, Sondheim's best score was into the woods and four, I think said company and 10 said Sweeney Todd. I mean, those are the top three scores. Yeah. Yeah, 10. Yeah. Because Sweeney Todd is such a brilliant, brilliant score. It is. And I was noticing when I saw the recent revival that the score truly can fully live on its own. I mean, I've seen it. I've seen it on stage multiple times. I've, mm -hmm. listened, I've listened to it a thousand times but truly yeah, yeah take all the visuals away listen to that score all the way through and you're still getting the full Sweeney Todd experience which yeah. I adore about it um yeah I so I, I think it was Jonathan Tunick who who once called Sweeney Todd uh Sondheim's tour de force and yeah. I don't think he was wrong mm. it's a brilliant brilliant score now, out of curiosity, mm -hmm. what would you say makes that score brilliant? Um, you know, Sondheim breaks down his uh, um, scores, uh, certainly with Into the Woods, and um, uh, uh, he does this with uh, Sweeney Todd and... Uh, uh, West Side Story, where he'll he'll take a little bit of a uh, a bit of music and turn it upside down and backwards on itself, you know. Um, in um, uh, in Into the Woods, it's the Bean theme, da 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 dum, and uh, it's the Dies Irae in um, in Sweeney Todd, and uh, you just gotta be paying attention to all these little. Um, tiny bits of music and how he turns them around and creates something so beautiful. Yeah. That was the biggest musical lesson I took away from Sondheim was precisely that the ability to build entire shows off mm -hmm. of a set of motifs. It's just a few themes done differently and then repurposed or as you said, turned on their head in order to tell the story or give a moment of character development. Yeah, so I, I, I realized something just recently. Um, uh, Gail, who's this woman that I teach Sondheim with, was talking in her class about how Sondheim likes to take things that are uh, normal and to make them strange. And I said, so he likes to take things that are uh, familiar and make them peculiar. And that is what he does. 
<laughs> something familiar, something peculiar. And, and he also does the opposite. He takes things that are um, peculiar, like uh, uh, a, um, a reverse sto uh, storytelling um, story like with Merrily We Roll Along or a, uh, um, a uh, Japanese uh, tale like we have in uh, Pacific Overtures. And he makes them familiar because he puts them into a uh, musical theater milieu that makes it more uh, make more sense. So that's Sondheim. He does something peculiar and makes it uh, familiar and vice versa. Absolutely. And I, I love, again, this is Sondheim on music. I love listening to him talk about how if if a because he fully recognizes that he pulled the canon, right? He took mm -hmm. musical theater and he was like, how far can we go in this direction? But he didn't want to lose his audiences. He knew right. better than that. And so always giving them something to hold on to while stretching in a direction, which goes to this idea of familiarity versus uh, something more peculiar very well. And a very specific example that I I love uh, from one of those interviews, he said, you can put anything over pedal tones and the audience will buy it. Because if there's a one, five, one, five over and over again, that is comfortable enough in Western music where anything goes over top of it. And I've experimented with that myself. And he's right. Yeah. <laughs> if you give one little something, a nugget that audiences feel good about, you can you can really stretch what the music and the lyric are doing. Otherwise, mm. it's fun. <laughs> cool. <laughs> All right. Um, is there anything about Stephen Sondheim and his work or your analysis of his work that you would feel remiss if you did not bring it up today? To, to my lovely audience of writers. Sure. Friends. Sure. Um, so I I uh I just love the lyrics to um uh West Side Story. And I was was thinking about um Something's Coming, where uh he talks about um uh th there's all kinds of nature imagery about the moon and about um the uh the river. Um I don't have the lyric in front of me, but uh, all kinds of uh, uh, naturalistic imagery, which works because the jets are um, mechanical and the sharks are uh, naturalistic. And mm. so even though you expect that um, uh, that Tony is really a jet and sleek and urban and uh, uh, mechanized, you kind of see that he really is a shark because of all the natural language that he uses in his episode. May I push back on that? Sure. I would say, personally, because there's also imagery of the door and the latch. There are mechanical images in that song as well that maybe he actually falls somewhere in between just naturally. Could be. That's fair. Could be. Who knows? Could be. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Last set of questions here as we wrap things up. Sure. Uh, do you have a favorite non-musical theater hobby or activity or interest that you don't get to talk about? Uh, sure. Um, 
non-musical theater interest. Um, I, uh, I have uh, a very specific interest in Hebrew grammar. I used to teach uh, biblical grammar, and I like um, very specific mathematical and uh, uh, symbolic systems, and uh, the grammar of the Bible fits, fits in that category. Probably not what you were looking for, but... No, I love that. That's exactly what I'm looking for. <laughs> Yeah, because that also that opens up a new dimension for me on how you analyze musical theater. I think that's so interesting. Very, very fine tooth comb. I love that. I love that. Do you have something, uh, something big that you haven't done yet? Maybe a program, an event, a business, a hobby, a goal, a something mm -hmm. brewing somewhere that that you know you want to make happen? Hmm. Yeah, you know, I just, uh, um, I, I really like what's going on now. I like being able to help people uh, see musical theater from a deeper angle. Um, I get to get my hands dirty with Sondheim's work and uh, Reginald Hammerstein and Andrew, Andrew Lloyd Webber and all kinds of other stuff. And uh, I really have exactly the job that I want. Oh, I love that. What a <laughs> gift. What a gift. And uh, what a gift to give to all of us with, with spending the time and, and getting to dive into the analysis with you. So we appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. What do you have coming up that we need to tell the people about? Sure. So um, uh, uh, there is a um, I'm co-teaching a master class on Sondheim every Tuesday or the, starting the second Tuesday in August for four Tuesdays in a row. We're doing Company, a little night music, merrily we roll, uh, merrily we roll along, and into the woods. I'm co-teaching it with Peter Felicia, um, noon on Tuesdays, and you can go to thebroadwaymaven.com to sign up. Wonderful. And where can people otherwise find you on the interwebs? That's probably the best way is to go to thebroadwaymaven.com. You can find my YouTube channel there. You can sign up for my newsletter. Comes out every Thursday. Uh, it's called the Broadway Maven's Weekly Blast. And you also have a paid newsletter as well, yes? Yeah, the, the newsletter, uh, uh, every the first issue of every month is free, plus uh, every week the main article plus a couple of the last blasts are free. And if you want more, then you have to pay for the paid version. Wonderful. And links for all of that will be in the description below, everyone. Terrific. David, thank you so much for being here oh, today. Oh, thank you, it's an absolute pleasure to talk with you always. <laughs> so thank you all very much for being here with us. And until next time, cheers, everyone. Thank you all for being here with me today. And I'll see you again soon. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Musical Theater Writer Guy, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this episode, please make sure to rate and review this show as it really helps others to discover what you already know. And please do share this show far and wide so we may all become an even closer musical theater community.